Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola, and I'm joined by Rania Kellick. Hello, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And we're very pleased to have on our show this week, week Jacqueline Keeler, who is a member of the Diné, Navajo, Yankton Sioux, Dakota tribes, and also the author of Native Morning, uh, or sorry, Edge of Morning, Native Voices Speak for the Bears' Ears, and she's a writer, journalist for The Nation, Yes Magazine, and other publications. We're very pleased to have you on our show. Thank you for having me. Pleased to be here. And unfortunately, um, we're having you here to talk about the restart of the Dakota Access Pipeline project, which the U.S. government has recommitted itself to uh, under President Donald Trump. And we wanted to hear from you how uh, how the communities, um, how, the, how the Sioux, how the indigenous people and activists who have been fighting this pipeline project are dealing with this development. Yes. Yeah, um, on Wednesday, as you know, the Army Corps of Engineers um, reversed a previous uh, decision and um, under pressure from Trump um, actually um, – um, actually uh, granted the easement um, under the Lake Oahe um, for the Dakota Access Pipeline. So, it, and also canceled the environmental impact statement process that had begun just last month under uh, the Obama administration. Yeah, and, and so the, uh, I, I just, if you could react to, uh, this is what uh, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribal Chair had to say. <laughs> Uh, yeah. As, as Native peoples, we have been knocked down again, but we will get back up. We will rise above the greed and corruption that has plagued our peoples since first contact. We call on the Native nations of the United States to stand together, unite, and fight back. Yeah, that's – I mean, this is um, – you know, we um, – Native nations, um, we are actually, you know, um, actual sovereign nations within the United States – and um, and these treaties, you know, treaties are only signed between sovereign nations. They are not signed between, you know, uh, the United States and simply ethnic groups or or you know just groups of Americans. These are um, these these were ratified in the Senate. Um, these are international law, and um, and the U.S. has been basically um, you know um, thumbing its nose, um, breaking these treaties for a hundred more than a hundred almost one hundred and sixty years. And um, the time that it, this, this, this time period does not make it okay. Uh, they had always expected us to be gone. They thought we would be gone you know, now, 100 years ago, they were predicting our demise. But we're still here, you know, physically and politically. And, um, and so we are demanding, you know, that Americans um, recognize this. Um, you know, I've been, you know, thinking about this a lot. And I've come to the conclusion that the United States is still a colony. It's a colony without portfolio. It doesn't have a homeland. You know, it broke away from Great, Great Britain, but it, it, it's actual homeland. But it's, it doesn't have a homeland. It, its lands are, are, are basically made up of other people's homelands, other nations. And so you see that under the 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty, much of uh, western uh, North Dakota and almost all of western South Dakota are part of the Great Sioux Nation of the Ochetti Shakoan, the Seven Council Players, as we call them. You know, it's um, you know, the 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 issue, the reason why the state of North Dakota is is using so much military violence to fight back on 
these very mild claims to consultation under the treaty made by the Sandy Rock Sioux Tribe and other tribes like my own, the Yankton Sioux Tribe and the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, were all, you know, dis were all signees of the 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty. We're all remnant states of the Great Sioux Nation. You know, we have standing internationally to make these claims under the treaty. You know, the lands should be returned. I mean, even Morton County is actually unceded treaty land, where that's where the DAPL um, construction sites are. You know, this is all land that actually should be part of the Great Sioux Nation and is being held militarily by the United States. And Americans really need to come to grasp with that, the fact that so much of the United States is not held through any legal means or any moral means, but strictly through military occupation. Wow, that's, that's actually a very important way to frame it, because I don't think people, I don't think people look at what's happening with the pipeline in that context, because <laughs> um, there's so well, many... This is how Native people view it. This is why this is why 566 sovereign nations signed, you know, tribal resolutions because we all understand it this way as an issue of um, of you know that the U.S. needs to be held morally accountable, especially since it holds other nations accountable. Um, this is a um, this is something that's not going to go away. They thought we would disappear and they wouldn't be held accountable, but we are still here. I mean, as recently as 1980, the Supreme Court ruled that the Black Hills, which is part of the 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty, should is, is actually you know owned by the Standing Rock Sioux Nation, I mean, not the, 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 the Great Sioux Nation, and it should be returned. Um, you know, it's um, you know that's where Fort Mount Rushmore is. You know, the, I mean. These are all symbols of um, this uh, of the United States' claims to moral superiority, but you know they actually are held um, through military force and in uh, violation of international treaties. And under those, like so, under those legal, like under the under the legality and stuff. I mean, is there a way to to, to take this to court? Well, the problem with the courts is this: is that um, U.S. Um, law is largely based. Its focus is basically um, sort of um, um, supporting um, the, the colonies' claims over that of the Native nations, you know. And so, if you look at Indian federal law, the, the history of it, you'll see that it begins with a. It doesn't begin, but part of it is a decision made by um, a very early decision. I think made around 1828 by the very first Supreme Court um, Chief Justice John Marshall. And in it, he basically says that it's called the Doctrine of Discovery, and it is still active law in the United States, and it's the basis for the U.S.'s rights to our lands, which basically says that only discovering Christian European nations have a right to the fee simple title of the land. That once they landed on our shores and they set foot on it, the, the fee simple title of the land it automatically reverted to them, that we lost it, and that we became we have only the title to the land that the animals um, have of use and occupation. And this is still active US law as recently as 2011. Um, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg cited it in a court case. Wow! So this is this is this, this needs to be um, the Americans need to reject this. But in rejecting it, they will undermine the land claims of states like North Dakota over a vast amount of their territory. And so this is why people are reluctant to do it. My aunt uh, Faith Spot Eagle, who is she she got one electoral college vote for president of the United States this year. Um, she went to the Vatican last spring. And she spoke to Vatican lawyers, and they told her this is not active Vatican law anymore. This is this is based. The doctrine of discovery is based on a papal bull issued, I think, one first in the 1550s and a second one in the, the 
I mean, the 1450s, and a second one in around 1492, and you know, which was to settle um, disputes over discovering lands between Portugal and Spain. And this is how this evolved. And they said this is no longer actually active Vatican law. It's only actually recognized law by the United States and other former col colonies like Australia and Canada. <laughs> so this is all to basically undergird colonies, um, colonial claims to indigenous native nations' lands. And this is, the, this is at the root of the problem, and this is why it's going to continue. There is a huge difference between a nation that's based on real people versus a colony. Mm -hmm. you know, a colony's goals is to basically exploit as quickly as possible all the resources of another people's homeland and export that wealth back to their ruling class. And this is the entire function of a colony. If you look at the United States, you will clearly see that that's how it functions, no matter who's on top, because a lot of these horrible, violent atrocities occurred under the Obama administration, which basically remained silent. There was no, you know, Loretta Lynch's just did nothing to address these issues. There was no federalization of the National Guard. Well, the National Guard has been used by the state of North Dakota right now to basically create blockades, economic blockades of the reservation. You know, and basic, and they have, and they're doing checkpoints just like you see in Palestine and Israel. This has been going on for months now. It has not been addressed and is not widely reported on. Um, you know, the tribe has suffered a, you know, their their casino, which is the main, you know, they use to, to basically as to fund their, their social service programs, went from making 14 million to making 8 million. They've lost 6 million dollars in income because of this economic blockade. And you know, I think that. Um, so when you look at a real people, which is, you know, what, you know, I think that indigenous people are and our nations represent our political entities, you know, we are based in a, um, we are created at that moment at which we have an interaction with a sacred being. And for the Lakota Dakota people, that is the white buffalo calf woman. And when I interviewed and spoke to, um, to council um, um, members um, for the San Roxy tribe, they told me that locally, the people there believe that that right along the pipeline corridor there is where the white buffalo calf woman came to our people. When she came to us and she brought us the Chalupa, the pipe, and the seven sacred ceremonies, including the Sundance, that's at the point that we became Lakota and Dakota. And she represents the embodiment of the land, of the earth, of, of all of it. And that the relationships that she gave us, the rules that she gave us, are how we live in harmony with creation. And this is the origin story of any real people. You know, the United States does not have an origin story like that. You know, the Navajo Nation does with changing women and with the holy people who came and greeted us when we got here and gave us the nada, the corn, and our songs, which keep us in harmony in Hojo, Nestle, with the earth. These are actual nations. These are actual people. I, this, is, this whole thing basically brings to light and the violence being utilized by the state of North Dakota brings to light the fact that the United States is not really a country in the sense that we are countries and, and um, has really sought to cloud and obliterate the actual existence of Native nations here. So what you're saying is important because we should understand, uh, you know, however people view uh, the fortune that you were able to have by getting uh, the Army Corps of Engineers to do this or that, uh, that is a very big anomaly, that, that they were open in any form to 
what was happening. And so I, you can you can comment on that however you want, but I think that leads into how you view um, uh, the resistance that's been going on. But we also know that, and I'm aware that you know, indigenous people didn't just start resisting last year. They've they've been resisting <laughs> projects like this forever and ever. So can you comment on how prominent this struggle has become in uh, consciousness with days of action that are going on throughout the country with people who, you know, they're probably not going to travel there and they don't necessarily, I'm not sure that you would necessarily want everyone to travel there, but um, there are people there that are really concerned and want to show some kind of solidarity. Yeah, I um, I actually think uh, it was really wonderful that Standing Rock became a pilgrimage for people because, you know, in our traditions, we didn't have authoritarian governments. You know, um, our rulers ruled through their tongue, how they could move the hearts of the people. And so we voted with our feet and we didn't have the, you know, our rulers didn't have the ability to, um, you know, through violence, state violence, force us to obey them. So people voting with their feet about the kind of world they want to live in and going to Standing Rock is completely within our cultural, you know, precepts. And um, I would say that, um, that uh, you know, the historic role of the Army Corps of Engineers um, for the Lakota Dakota people has been one of the um, uh, not of consultation. I mean, the Yankton Sioux tribe, my tribe, attempted to get consultation from the Army Corps. Um, Colonel Henderson, who's head of the Omaha district, he would not respond to them, and he, they finally had to go and hand deliver in person a letter demanding consultation. And that meeting did not go well. And you know, it's um, you know, and of course, the um, Standing Rock Sioux tribe has released audio of their meetings from 2014 with Adapa representatives, and and they were completely ignored. Um, the, um, and the, and often when these big projects happen, it's our lands that are seen as sacrifice zones. You know, um, the Army Corps of Engineers in the 1940s and 50s oversaw the Pick Sloan dams, which basically were a set of five dams along the Missouri River, which flooded hundreds of thousands of acres of, of, na of Native Nations lands. Um, you know, they spent 100 years forcing us to become farmers, and then they went and flooded all of our best farmland, which was, um, and, um, and destabilized our economies in the 1950s. And they wouldn't, they really tried not to flood, um, you know, the, um, uh, the lands of white farmers because of the huge backlash, political backlash they would receive. So we were the ones, we were seen as politically expendable. And, and, and also our treaties were expendable in general. And um, because basically as an occupation, you know, our needs are not, you know, it's better to keep us weak. And so, um, and then, so this is the historic relationship with the Army Corps of Engineers. And the land that they, the Army Corps of Engineers presently claims to have the permitting rights to, the, they claim that the Missouri River is a federal waterway, therefore they have the, they have the authority to issue permits, you know, under, for, for drilling and stuff. You know, I don't know, first of all, that that land that they're claiming authority over, they took during the building of the dam there. You know, Cannonball, the community there, lost a lot of farmland. That community has um, endured a lot from the Army Corps of Engineers. Part of, a lot of that land was taken in excess of the building of the dam, this idea that they would need extra to offer, you know, uh, recreational activities for, for uh, you know, for folks in North Dakota, and was never returned to the tribe. And so the authority, the claim of authority is, is kind of, you know, should be examined more closely. Um, I actually feel like that the, um, the signees of the Fort Laramie Treaty have jurisdiction over that waterway because the treaty includes the east bank of the Missouri River, 
we and and it goes all the way the land the unceded land goes all the way up to Bismarck, the capital itself, entirely encompassing that you know a, a large part of the pipeline crossing there, going through that area, and um, and really the tribe should be cons not only consulted, but I think that all the tribes that are signees of the Fort Laramie Treaty, the 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty, should be the permitting offices for this um, this and and that's like that is. Um, I think um, the right, I think this is part of what Native people are, our, our nations are asking for or demanding is, you know, these are our lands. We, um, you know, the United States claim certain things. We want them to live up to who they say they are. And I think this is the, this is the only, this is the final, this is the only way to really address it long term because these things keep coming up, these issues. And, um, and until, um, until that happens, we're going to have another DAPL. We're going to have, in fact, it's going on all over the country. There's, a, you know, um, these sorts of things. Um, and um, so um, projects in which Native nations and their communities are, are seen as the ones who will pay the price for these projects. I, I wonder, and perhaps, perhaps this is naive to ask on my part, but um, I wonder, is, is there any option of taking this, like, to the international community because it's a violation of like a nation's sovereignty. Yeah, it has been. I mean, there have been um, long-term um, work, long-term work being done at the UN, um, and um, of course, they, you know, there was the whole creation of uh, the um, the uh, Declaration of uh, of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples uh, from the UN. Um, that was the work of like 40 years of work at the UN with native nations. Um, it's, um, been a, but I feel like there, the enforcement issue is, is can't be addressed that way. And I think that it can only be addressed by Americans understanding the situation accurately and acting upon it. I think that this is the only way we're going to, to basically, um, redraw the relationship between our nations and the, the colonists who have come here. And um, so I think that is only, the only way, and I think that a lot of it is just recognizing that they are colonists, that this is not their homeland, and, um, and that they need to think about how can they be ethical colonists, if that's possible. <laughs> I see what you're saying, but yeah, that's an interesting phrase. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, and I, you know, I think that um, looking at the, um, you know, I, I am concerned about, um, um, you know, um, the um, people coming, I mean, obviously the tribe has asked people not to come to, you know, to, to take, to, you know, fight this in their own communities, um, you know, holding their um, their elected officials accountable. Um, and, and certainly the communities there on the reservation, Cannonball particularly, and, and five other districts have actually passed resolutions, um, uh, basically um, giving a date, a deadline, I think next Thursday, where they want everyone who is not a resident to leave. Mm. Um, so there are a lot of reasons for this. There's, um, you know, um, they cite um, violence in some of the camps. Um, and, uh, and so I think that, um, that the community probably wants more oversight over the camps because it impacts their community so directly. Mm -hmm. And, um, and a lot of, and, you know, there were people who were coming who were, you know, um, there's just a lot, there's really amazing people coming and then there are people who are, who are mentally ill, you know? Yeah. And, um, so I, when I was there, I was talking to some of the medics and healer council folks and they told me like, yeah, there's just stories. It's, it's, they're really working to deal with it, but it takes a lot of energy from the community. And these are poor communities. I mean, the average individual income on the Standing Rock Sioux reservation is I think $4,421 a year. 
Um, the, um, I, the, the number, I mean, the, the population of the reservation is about 8,000 people. So there have been times when the camp was larger than the entire population of the reservation. Um, and this has a huge impact on the communities. Um, you know, I did some, um, I did, um, I did some reporting on, um, I wasn't around when Moody happened, but I did some reporting decades later, obviously, and, um, and I talked to folks there, and they had, you know, I was really surprised at what some of them said, because what I knew about the takeover of Wounded Knee in 1973 is, was the whole, um, you know, the, the story that I learned in the books, and, and certainly from the Native community in general, which was one of, you know, this, this amazing rebirth um, of, our, of, our, of our identity and our movement. And, and we all owe a huge debt to the American Indian movement, to, you know, being proud of who we are. Um, and, um, but then I talked to community members and they were like, well, you know, we feel like that they just came in and destroyed our community without our consent. Hmm. And I was like, what, <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, oh, well, we used to have a post office. We used to have a store. Now we have to drive all the way into Pine Ridge. And, and this, these sound like pedestrian concerns, you know, like what? I mean, this no, is No, but I mean, this is like yeah. in their community. Yeah, no, it's like. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, and so, and, and I, you know, you hear, and when I spoke to people at Cannonball, I was really surprised. I went to a community meeting and they were telling me how, you know, they, um, how they felt traumatized. And part of it was that they had not gone, they had not given consent to some of the actions being taken in their name. Mm. And they felt terrible that young women had lost their arms and eyes. And they weren't sure that they, they were comfortable with people doing this in their name. And, um, and, you know, a um, little background, I worked, one of my first jobs out of college was working as a community organizer um, on reservations. Um, I worked at, um, with the Rio Grande Pueblos, and then I also worked with um, Eastern Navajo, um, First Mesa Hopi, and Zuni Akama. And, you know, going in there and being trained to work in, in communities, the first thing I was taught by other Native activists was you ask the community what they want mm-hmm. and don't assume you know. Because you, you know, you need to, they, it needs to be coming from them. And, and often you'd be very surprised at what they wanted. And then also to listen to how they want to achieve it. What are their strategies? They know their community. They know that better than you do. And, um, and when I found was when I did these things, even though I was sort of like, why are we doing this? <laughs> um, it actually, when we got, when we succeeded, I mean, you know, I had to do all kinds of lobbying at the state level and, you know, grant writing, um, you know, it had an impact on the community, which was really transformative and amazing. And so I think that listening and engaging with the local community is a worthwhile thing. It's also it's also culturally correct yeah. um, in Lakota, Lakota, Dakota culture, you know, in many native cultures, we had this whole thing about consensus. Um, we weren't majority rule. We were a consensus, like 100 percent agree. Jamie. And it's a very long process. Yeah. Very frustrating. <laughs> but it's our tradition. You know, it's our cultural, you know, this is called a culturally based way of doing it. And um, and so, you know, following a couple of people who you think are the right Indians to follow, I think is um it, it is, um, I think it, it, it circumvents this process, the, the consult consultation with the community and this traditional process of consensus and also respective elders. I mean, um, I actually wrote a, um, a thing today because I was sort of thinking about this. And, you know, my, my great, great aunt was actually, um, my, my grandmother's family were from Wakpala on Standing Rock. They were actually from Standing Rock. Um, they lived there for many years. And, and um and, you know, she um, became an ethnologist and studied with Franz Boas at Columbia University and, you know, worked with 
all kinds of folks. And she spoke all three dialects of our of our of our languages, Lakota, Dakota, Nakota. And she beginning about she's my great great aunt. Beginning about a hundred years ago, she started interviewing elders and you know, and really recording our culture as it was before contact with Americans. And one of the things that um, I think um, people really overlook is the kinship system. We have, that was our only rule of law was the kinship system. And it was, um, the rules were pretty detailed and, um, and absolutely um, had to be followed. I mean, um, and this sort of is um, what you hear now, you hear the sort of general version of it, you know, honor elders and all this stuff. But um, it was, you know, um, it, it's hard to imagine um, any Lakota person um, breaking with kinship, um, not listening to their elders. Um, these are not our, this is not our culture. This is colonialism. And, um, and so this is, it is unfortunate to see this happening in the movement is, um, um, you know, I, I, you know, seeing um, people say, you know, I'm not, I'm not listening to elders. I want to do it this way. And I don't care what the community says, you know, um, they're just, if I die, they're just going to have to deal with it. You know, it's sort of, <laughs> I don't know. It seems, you know, I mean, I keep telling you, I was like, well, you know, the community might really want to do this, but I think that you have to get their consent first because then I think they will be able to deal with the repercussions um, in a much more, um, you know, they've accepted the outcomes. They know what's going to happen. They are on board. Um, you know, it's, I think it's, it is very traumatizing for the community. Um, they, um, they knew that the, the racism was out there, you know, but now it's visible. Now they, 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 you know, the, the racism in the white communities around them, some of the cannibal folks were telling me that they're scared for their children who go to school off reservation. Um, and, um, and, uh, you know, I was talking to a grandmother from Shine River and she was telling me how, you know, some of the students at her granddaughter's school, the native students who are, it's a white majority school, you know, were facing a lot of harassment um, because of their, their support for Scanning Rock. One even tried to commit suicide. You know, there's a, there's a whole aspect to it like that, which, you know, um, if you are part of a native community, you are aware of. And, and everyone's related. I mean, you're talking about, you know, 8,000 people, you know, the community of Cannibal is even smaller, you know, they're all real related to each other and they have to live with each other for decades afterwards and for the rest of their lives, basically. And they need to be working together. I think it's, I can't imagine just the kind of how destructive that can be to such a small community. Um, you know, if they are driven by, you know, um, by division and supported by outsiders to fund these divisions. <laughs> No, anyway no totally totally um and on that note so like what can people do now that um the decision's gone through and what is it that like what is it that people outside of the reservation can do to help well i you know i would definitely say support you know um you know support the community support the um their elected leadership you know um and um and really um you know, begin to question, um, you know, the United States's colonial role in all this, because, um, you know, the, you know, the economics of colonialism is what's driving all of this suffering and all of this damage to, the, to you know, our, our water and our, 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 our earth. You know, I think that we need to really question colonialism. I mean, you know, this oil and um, it's all just, a, you know, get rich quick thing with no regard for 
for um, the future. You know, a lot of this, uh, the tar sands oil is coming out of Canada, which is, um, you know, uh, has in, been impacting uh, very remote Native Indi uh, First Nations communities there. Um, it has, it's just uh, the whole pipeline, you know, yeah, Trump also, you know, was authorized the, you know, the fast tracking or the rebirth, the reemer, the, uh, you know, bringing it back the Keystone XL pipeline. And, you know, it's, um, this whole system is, is, um, is, um, can only really be challenged if we challenge its fundamental um, uh, sort of structure. Mm. And um, I think that this is what Americans need to really come to terms with, like throw away your old conceptions that you've been taught, because those were um, the result of hundreds of years of active U.S. policy to disappear Native nations uh, and Native people. And, um, and so, you know, I think they need to just throw that out of their minds and actually begin to embrace the fact that they are colonists and that they have this comes with responsibilities right. and, um, and that maybe the United States needs to realize that it's in the position like Great Britain was with India, that maybe it just needs to get out of certain areas hmm. um, and, um, and actually, you know, just do the right thing. Um, and, uh, and at the very least, I think that we need to change the relationship between the U.S. government and Native nations. Um, it's an extremely um, it's an extremely um, one sided relationship, um, an extremely um, abusive one. And Native people are dying because of it. I mean, not just, you know, in violent, you know, not, by, not just by state violence, you know, um, by the police in Morton County, but also um, by um you know, just on every level, I mean, Native youth have the highest rates of suicide. You know, they, Native men, I mean, Native men between the ages of 25 and 35 have six times the rate of death by police of, um, of Black men in this country. Wow. I mean, the, uh, you know, the colonialism exacts a huge price from the, um, the actual, um, you know, the colonized. And, um, and, and the fact that most Americans have no clue that Native nations are nations, um, you know, needs to end. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, the maps need to actually reflect the actual political reality. I mean, Native nations have a higher political status than states. Mm -hmm. You know, it clearly says that, like, in the opening, uh, you know, opening paragraphs of the Constitution of the United States. You know, I mean, it's... Um, you know, it's not uh, it's not like a secret. Really. Yeah, no, yeah. I wonder also the education system in this country. I mean, it's not something that you learn about. Um, I mean, I don't recall in elementary school learning that just you learn the 50 states. Well, you know, <laughs> right? I, it wasn't really made clear to me until I took a class in Indian federal law. That's you insane. Know? Like it should be like <laughs> a know? common. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, the reason I mean, it's 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 U.S. policy. Right. You right. know, it's their policy because they the whole point of their system um, of laws and everything is to basically undergird their colonial claims to our lands and to deny the claims of Native nations. You know, saying that we don't have possessed fee simple title to our land, that's a basic human right. You know, the United States doesn't deny any other country has fee simple title to their land. You know, um, you know, like, I mean, do they do that to Pakistan? No, you know, they do that to us because they, you know, utilize our resources and our lands to such a degree to fund their wealth. And um, so, you know, when people, you know, I just think that the Americans really need to reconstruct the paradigm so they can actually do the right thing. Because you can't do the right thing if you don't even know what the situation is. Do you feel like the um, the pipeline, I mean, the pipeline protest was, was I guess, 
kind of an opportunity maybe to, it seems to have educated people to some degree. Um, and oh, the yeah. Native struggle, for the first time in my lifetime, I think the Native struggle has become a part of the progressive cause um, in a really visible way, more than it was before, I should say. Um, does, I mean, do, does that, is that like a, do you see that as something that's like a positive, I mean, did, would you agree with that assessment? And do you think that's like a positive momentum to be able to, for, for Americans to be able to change their, the way that they see the situation? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that, I mean, that's been really one of the best things about all this. I mean, you know, I think, um, and I really think that, and like I said, I feel like Sandy Rock has been a pilgrimage and, and, and I do think that. You know, um, when 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 we are all invited again by the community, we should go. We should experience that. I mean, the encampment itself, um, you know, especially when it grew to ten to fifteen thousand people. You know, when I know that the elders in my dad's family always said that the most painful thing about the reservation years was that we no longer could camp together like that. This is the the camp society, camp circle society, is a fundamental is fundamental to Lakota Lakota people, and. Um, and, and the social structure that it embodied and being able to live it again, you know, um, is, is really, um, something I never thought I'd see in my life. And I mean, we experience this when we do Sundance and things like that, but, um, but it, this is, this is, you know, to share it with other groups, uh, to, uh, to basically, cause it is that, it is that, um, that cultural sharing that has really been the, um, has been a really amazing part of, um, of the, of America. Um, you know, my husband is Iroquois, um, he's Mohawk and Seneca and, uh, and his nation, the six nations, the Iroquois Confederacy, the Haudenosaunee, um, they were, um, they had a lot of, um, cultural exchange with the colonists. I mean, if you look at the, the Eastern, the, the Western border of the 13 original colonies, that is the Iroquois Confederacy basically. And, um, so, you know, there was a lot of exchange going on. I'm, you know, uh, Benjamin Franklin, his first bestseller was a translation of the speeches of the Taidaho, who was a leader of the Iroquois Confederacy, who actually went and spoke to the colonists about uniting and the whole thing with the, with the arrows, you know, the bundle of arrows being stronger than individual arrows. You see it in the great, the, the eagle on the seal of the United States. He's holding the bundle of arrows. You know, this is, this, this is a Iroquois Confederacy um, example, uh, example they gave. It was part of their culture. And so a lot of this became part of just, and it was a bestseller. It was, you know, um, Franklin's first bestseller as a printer. And, um, um, and it was widely read in the colonies. This is kind of what was laying the, the Iroquois Confederacy and the Great Law of Peace were fundamental to the development of democracy and the promotion of it internationally. Um, you know, and then, of course, later with the, um, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and, uh, you know, she attended, she, she lived in Seneca Falls, New York, which was adjacent to a Seneca village, right? And she observed the Seneca women because the, the, um, a lot of Native nations are, um, the women have a very decisive role in the government. Uh, a lot of the colonists called our governments petticoat governments because of that. And so the, uh, the women, the clan mothers, you know, choose the leaders. The, all the property goes through the women. It's matrilineal. And uh, it's the same thing with the Navajo people, you know, and, uh, and so this was, this was common, you know, the Cherokee had this, you know, the, 
beloved woman, you know, they had all these sorts of things. And uh, so she observed this. And basically, if you read the speeches from Seneca Falls, the, they're saying, like, we want what the Seneca women have. We see it. We see what they have. You know, they, their children will never forget them. You know, they can walk around at night without being raped. You know, it's the sort of thing like they can see that women's rights are possible because they see a culture in which it actually exists. And so these cultural exchanges have, you know, made billions of people's lives better across the world. And that is no exaggeration. You know, so the cultural exchanges that occur when you have intact Native communities, you know, uh, and, and, you know, the communities like Cannibal and, and Native communities on the Navajo Nation, which are threatened through by uranium mines, these are valuable, valuable human cultural resources and should be protected. You know, um, there's no way that, the, that our languages and our culture will survive if we're a minority amongst minorities spread across another, you know, in U.S. cities. That will not work. You know, we need these communities. We need to protect these communities. And so, um, yeah, I think, um, you know, this is um, the sharing that happened at Standing Rock and the camps is, is an incredible situation. And I think that, um, you know, Native nations are recovering. You know, I, I'm a citizen of the Navajo Nation. It has 350,000 members, citizens. You know, um, you know there, they say there's actually another 200,000 who could enroll if they chose to. You know, we are recovering in numbers, in size. You know, um, the Navajo Nation is the size of Ireland, has the population of Iceland, is larger than 22 member states of the UN. I mean, when we're talking about, and, and the same thing with the great, you know, with the, with the Dakota Lakota, you know, nation, the Ocheki Shakoan, you know, if you add all the reservations together in the United States and the ones even in Canada, you know, you're talking about, you know, about 250,000 people. And so, you know, we haven't disappeared. We are going to have to be dealt with as political entities, you know, um, and, and, and it's kind of scary because what Trump is talking about is termination, is terminating tribes. Um, this, you know, they try to do this in the 1950s. Um, but I mean, this is this is going to be a huge fight. We're going to have to fight for our existence uh, and we're going to have to make and this has to the, the accountability has to come from the American people. They have to be saying we want a different relationship with Native nations. That's not you know, destructive, abusive, um, violent, and, um, and unjust. If I may ask you one more question, uh, this is some, something that we haven't really uh, talked about, but I know that you kind of got into it uh, in this recent post, which, which you've been talking about uh, or alluding to here. Uh, but there's this tendency among people who are involved in activism to, to view struggle and respond to struggle um, by the way it's, it's being repressed and to also put a lot of focus on the FBI um, and like history and, and how COINTELPRO has interacted um, with movements. And I think to some extent that can actually fuel uh, nihilism or, or cynicism <laughs> about what people are able to accomplish. Uh, and so now there's there, there's a Guardian story that went up this past week about Joint Terrorism Task Force uh, agents going after people and asking them questions. Uh, now, first, I, I'm, I'm sure you can comment on how this is no new development to indigenous people in this country that the FBI has, has been paying them attention for decades. Uh, but also, uh, what are, do you have any concerns about how this could become a focus of, of, of no dapple now, this, this like inordinate focus on how uh, there are agents among 
activists how there are infiltrators potentially among people who are resisting. Yeah, I, I saw that when I was there and, um, and it was, um, you know, um, there was this whole element in the camp, in the Otebi Shikolan camp uh, that was, um, um, I think it was largely affiliated with the Red Warrior camp that was extremely um, sort of aggressive, um, you know, um, and, um, and really sort of, um, uh, you know, the, the Red Warrior camp, they were actually asked to leave by unanimous vote by the tribe. And, uh, and once again, this is an issue of that they weren't consulting with the community on actions and uh, in, that they were taking in their name. And, and I, I fully think that, you know, the community could totally support these actions. Um, I think they just have to be done in a, in a way that is respectful of the community uh, through consultation. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think, um, you know, that is, um, that is a, that is a result of, um, of the, um, the work of the Nixon administration and Coental Pro, um, in the seventies, um, had a really, um, it's the, um, and that was the goal of the program was to destabilize trust in the movement, um, between people. And it did lead to, um, the murder of Anime Akwash, a Mi'kmaq woman from Nova Scotia, um, and, uh, and it was, uh, it's just a really um, destructive force. And, I, and my, my way of, my sort of um, way, the way that we can contain this would be through um, what I said before, which is um, constantly um, make sure that our movement is culturally based because our cultures were strong. Those systems of accountability were incredibly strong. I think that we need to re-embrace um, these systems and relearn them because a lot of our youth don't know them. All they know are the stereotypes that they were taught by Hollywood about who we are. You know, when I look at um, leaders like um, Sitting Bull and, and um, you, know, you know, another leader, great leader, um, Sandy Rockwood's Chief Gall, and also um, Crazy Horse, you know, these are leaders that are known around the world and respected and and they are the product of our of our traditional culture of of the kinship system they were people who were revered in their community because they honored um their community and their relationships in it and um and i think that this is a great antidote to attempts by the u.s government to destabilize our movement to turn us against each other um, you know, to, uh, to close up and to, um, and to fall apart. Um, so I, um, I definitely think that, um, that, you know, looking very closely and examining our traditions and relearning them, a lot of our young people don't know them. Um, all they know, sadly, are the stereotypes promoted by Hollywood, even of our own leaders. Um, and, um, and, you know, and I see um, you know, the stereotypes is really detrimental. I mean, you see that even in the way that the, uh, the North Dakota um, state legislature is passing laws right now to criminalize, uh, you know, uh, you know, demonstrators and particularly native demonstrators. And, and it's, um, you know, um, it, it's uh, I think that we need to basically really get to know ourselves and to uh, to uh, the part of this um this uh, this rebirth of the this reemergence of the Great Sioux Nation does have to be you know to uh, a rebirth of our cultural um, of our socio cultural institutions that the United States the United States spent so much energy um, deconstructing and destroying. Well, thanks very much for doing this interview. We really appreciate uh, all your all your wisdom and and everything that you were able to share about what's happening. Thanks, Mr.
Thank you so much. It was really a really um, eye-opening interview. And hopefully we can have you back on again soon. Um, Definitely. On a better, with better news. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> All right. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you thought that there were a few technical difficulties with this episode, there were. Uh, those will be worked out by next week. And because Jacqueline's interview went much longer than expected, we posted the discussion portion as a separate episode this week, so you can find that uh, uploaded. Uh, thank you again. <laughs>